Please do greet Jake and Simone after the worship service here. We come now to our sermon text, Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue through this magnificent letter. We come now to the climax, what the letter has been hurtling towards from the very beginning is now about to be read to us. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. This is found on page 1197. Please stand out of respect for God's infallible word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many things in your word that are so awe-inspiring, so majestic. Things that should take our breath away. And yet, Lord, such is the weakness of our faith that sometimes we struggle even just to stay awake, just to focus. And so we pray, as your weak people, but as your earnest people, that you would enliven our faith now, that you would energize our minds, and that you give us the grace to see what your word is saying. Let it truly capture our imaginations and the loyalties of our hearts. And may it banish from our hearts all idolatry and all weakness of faith and even all boredom. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can imagine there may be a couple people here who are looking forward to Christmas. Maybe a couple little people. And, or maybe some older people. Good. Um, and I can relate to that. I remember uh, being a little guy and really looking forward to Christmas. And I just remember when Christmas morning finally arrived... I just remember thinking to myself, there's just nothing better than this. This is just so awesome. This is so great. And of course, as time goes on, you start to realize these are really great times. These are special times. And yet, God has made us for something greater. And yet, as good and as fun and as joyful as these times are, as good as it is even to look forward to these times, God has made us for so much more. And so as we come today to the climax of this letter to the Hebrews, we come to the great goal, the great high point of everything that this whole letter has been charging towards. 
And I want you to just think about Hebrews 12, 2, where it talked about Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Now just think about that. Jesus, for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus was looking forward to something. What was he looking forward to? What was Jesus himself looking forward to? What is described in our passage. The arrival of the people of God at Zion. And, and as we start to like let that sink in to ourselves with all the busyness that's been going on and everything that our minds have been thinking of besides, besides this, and we started to just take in for a second, wow, wait a second, what we're about to hear about is what all of history is hurtling towards. It's not just this letter to the Hebrews, but this is like what it's all about. This is what the climax of history will be. This is the thing that Jesus himself, who has the greatest and most perfect affections of all, is looking forward to. This is the thing that will never be surpassed. I hope that it creates a, a little bit anticipation. I hope that it gives you a sense, wow, you know, there are some really great moments in our lives that we really look forward to. Christmas is one of them. Weddings, we look forward to these. These are events that are beautiful and that we should treasure. And yet, as beautiful as they are, we all know this, right? There's always the day after Christmas, <laughs> right? It always passes, right? These are beautiful moments, but they are fleeting moments. And so, if our hearts are completely given to these passing moments, we will be disappointed. We are missing something that is so much greater and so much more glorious. And it is that joy, that wonder, that we need to really be captured by, and that when we give our hearts to it, it will not disappoint us that we really need to see again today. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to to lead, he wants to lead us to that today. So we're going to look first at the place that we have not been brought to, which is Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 21 is what he describes first. He says, you have not come to this particular place. But then he shifts, and in verse 22 he says, but you have come to Zion. That's what we'll look at second. And then we'll see what it means. What does it mean that we've come not to Sinai, but to this mountain, the heavenly Zion? So he first wants us to know where God has not led us in this new covenant. He says, we have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And he doesn't say the name, but the the reference is obviously to Mount Sinai. In fact, uh, the words from this verse, verse 22, is practically a quote from Deuteronomy 4.11 and also Deuteronomy 5.22 through 23. He's lifting those descriptions and saying, look, this is what it was like when Israel met with God for the first covenant, the old covenant. And let's just let our, emo- our, our, our imaginations try to capture that scene, because it's so important that we understand this scene that we've not come to if we're going to get the glory the greater glory of the place where we have come. So just try to picture it. Try to imagine standing there in the desert, the wilderness, this dry desert-like place before a vast and imposing mountain, 
And on top of this mountain, which is imposing as it is, just as a mountain, imagine that on top of that mountain, there is a supernatural site. There is a blazing, otherworldly fire that is burning on top of it. There are, are surrounding that fire, there are awesome storm clouds swirling. There is also the deepest of darkness. And the word here for darkness, it's kind of interesting. Hebrew has really cool, interesting words for darkness. And one of these words is this word, which is the same word which is used for the plague, the ninth plague of darkness. It says in Exodus that that darkness was so deep it could be felt. That's the darkness that is surrounding this. And then on top of the sights of Sinai, there are also the sounds, the trumpet blasts, the great voice that terrorizes everybody. And then there are the words of the voice, the voice of God that says, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. In other words, do not approach. Do not approach. Certain death awaits anybody who presumes on my holiness, who presumes to come forward. I think this is one of these places where we see the wisdom of God in giving us words and not a movie. Because there are, there's no special effects. There's no, like, magic of Hollywood that could ever create this scene as it was for them. This is an awesome, awesome sight. And as we're just thinking about it, this, this theophany of God, that's when, when God appears and shows himself in some awesome way. We have to remember that what they're seeing is not God himself in the sense that God is invisible, but they are seeing a manifestation of God's glory. In other words, God, who is the author of all creation and who uses all of creation to reveal himself, he's using these created things to show him, show his people his glory. And it's so important that we get into our heads, even as he's saying you've not come to this mountain, it's so important we get into our heads that this is an accurate picture of God. This is a true revelation of God. One of the most terrible errors that has ever plagued the Christian church is the error that the Old Testament, oh, you know, that's like this God of wrath that we don't, we don't worship that God. We've got the good, kind, gracious God of, of the New Testament. No, no, no. The God of the Old Testament is our God. He is a holy God that we worship too. And this is an accurate picture of God. He is the holy God. He is the God of power. He is not the God to be tri trivialized. And this is so important for us in our present age because as we are always tempted to make God in our own image, what is our culture like? Our culture likes, does not like holiness. Our culture, culture likes warm fuzziness cuddliness. We get, the, we get the, the God as the warm and cuddly grandpa is kind of the prevailing picture. The, the God who's always like, oh, don't worry too much about your sin. I'll be there for you and I'll do whatever you like. Is there any wonder then if that's how, we is that how our culture and, and much of sadly the Christian church conceives of God, is there any wonder then that our worship is often silly and irrelevant? or irreverent, I should say. 
No, this is not who our God is. He is the consuming fire. He is the God of the whirlwind. He is the God of the tempest that is appearing here at Sinai. And the people of Israel are so terrorized by what they see that they say, uh, okay, Moses, you go up there. You talk to God, not us. And Moses himself, he says, I am paralyzed with fear. I tremble with fear. And I just think we need, we need to meditate on this scene before we move on to where we have come. We need to remember this God of Sinai. It will do our souls a world of good if we think about this. Like, what happens when you think about God as the God of Sinai, the God of awesome holiness? It just sweeps away all our pride. It takes it all away. I mean, in the face of this scene, is there anybody who's going to say, I'm the strongest, I'm the smartest, I am the most upstanding and most righteous? Like, nobody's going to say that in the face of this, right? All of those things are just instantly going to fly out of our minds when we behold God and His glory. And here also will pass away all silliness and irreverence as well. No one is going to be goofing off in the back row at the congregation in, in Israel. Nobody's going to be elbowing their friend or whispering jokes in the face of this. I remember once sitting in a church, and I saw the lady in front of me had the audacity in the midst of the sermon to get out her iPhone and start shopping on Amazon in the midst of the sermon. Okay, if Israel had had iPhones, they're not going to be shopping on Amazon at the foot of Mount Sinai. No, they're not going to be cruising social media and like, when is this going to be over? I'm getting hungry for lunch. No, when God thunders from Sinai, they are going to give him their whole attention. Our God is a terrifyingly holy God. There is no terror. There is no awe. There is no power that can match his presence Mount Sinai accurately portrays the glory of who our God is. And yet, as true a picture of God as it is, verse 18 says we have not come to this physical, touchable, smoking mountain. Instead, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. And let's see what he says about Zion. Then we'll, we'll, we'll contrast these two mountains. So what is Zion? Well, we have this, this beautiful, detailed picture of Sinai in the first few verses of our passage. Now he's going to give us an equally detailed picture of Zion. And remember that Zion is basically another word synonymous for Jerusalem. So Zion is the chief mountain of Jerusalem where the temple is. And, of course, there is an earthly Zion. There is an actual place on earth. You can go to it. You can visit it. And there is an actual city. Jerusalem, where you can also go there. But that is not what this is about. In fact, those cities, even in Old Covenant times, were just shadows of something far, far greater, the heavenly Jerusalem, as he calls it in verse 22. And it's important to remember, as we talk about the heavenly Jerusalem, that this is a real place. It is the everlasting city of God. This is what is portrayed for us in Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the Bible, 
where it does exist, but it is now on another plane of existence. It is in the new creation. And it is a physical place in the sense that it is where Jesus' physical body is today. The living Christ is a human being today. He will always be a human being. And his heart beats and his lungs breathe the air of the new creation. And who else is there? Well, verses 22 through 24 tell us. We see God the Father is there, the judge of all, it says. Then there are also innumerable angels in festal gathering. In other words, they are gathered for a celebration. Angels in festal gathering, innumerable angels. And then it also says there are the souls of the righteous made perfect. So are their bodies there yet? No, their bodies are still buried here on earth. Well, where are their souls? What happens to someone's soul when they die? Well, this is one of the passages that prove to us that their souls go to be with Jesus. And notice how it says, the souls of the righteous made perfect. This is where we get our idea that when someone dies, that they do immediately pass into glory. In other words, they are perfected in holiness. Their sanctification is instantly completed. And as they enter into the throne presence of Jesus, their soul, as it enters into his throne presence, they are completely holy as they behold his face for the first time. It says they are those who are enrolled in the Lamb's book of life and have entered the Master's joy. And as we think about these two places, there's Sinai we saw first and Zion, there are definite similarities between the two. After all, it's the same God of both places, right? Um, did you notice the awesome and holy God of Sinai? How is he described in, at Zion? He is the judge of all, right? Still just as holy and as awesome as ever. And in both cases, what is going to be the right response as you come before Mount Zion? Well, it's the same as at Sinai to tremble with awe and with wonder and with worship. We're going to see an entire sermon dedicated to this when we return to Hebrews 12, where it'll close with, so therefore, let us worship him with reverence and awe. But the main focus is on the differences here. You have not come to this mountain, Sinai, but you have come to this mountain, Zion. What are the differences between the two? Well, number one is this. At Sinai... The people, and even Moses, trembled with absolute dread and fear at God's holiness. At Zion, the new mountain, God is no less holy, and certainly we do still tremble before his holiness, but did you notice? Everybody is celebrating. The angels are in festal gathering. There is joy. At Sinai, what happens? God rebuffs the people. He says, don't even come any closer. Don't touch this mountain or you're, you will be stoned. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it will die. In fact, you think about how did God structure Old Covenant worship? You know, the tabernacle, that great tent, that is a copy or a replica of the mountain. And in the same way that only one person was allowed to go up the mountain, Moses, the mediator, so also, there's only one person, the great high priest, who's allowed to go once a year into, as it were, the cloud 
and to offer a sacrifice to God. And so what's God saying by this? He's saying there is a way of approach, but it is very limited. And no, no one may come into my presence without the holiness that is required. And so part of the old covenant is structured to say, keep your distance because you do not yet have this holiness. God keeping himself at arms, God keeping his people at arm's length, even while he does also dwell with them. There's both grace and also holy holiness. Well, what's happening at Zion? It says, you have come. You have come to the city. You have come to the city of the living God. You get to actually enter the most holy place, is what Hebrews 10 told us. With boldness, you get to enter into that holy place where Jesus entered, offering the sacrifice for us. It even says you have come to God, the judge of all. The holy God, who is just as holy as he was at Sinai, is now welcoming us into his presence. And if we ask ourselves, how can this be? It leads us into the other things that are so much greater about Zion. After all, if God is still just as holy and we're just as sinful as Israel was, then why this change in policy? Why, why, why are we actually allowed to come? Well, that's why he talks about the better mediator of a better covenant. Jesus, right? The entire letter's been building up so you can understand this difference. Jesus is the better high priest who's offered the better sacrifice once for all that truly cleanses us of our sins, truly makes us holy. Moses trembled with fear. He says, I tremble with fear. Jesus enters with confidence into his Father's presence, bearing his own blood as a sacrifice. And then he turns and he says, you all get to come too. You all get to enter the Father's presence. And it's all because of what it says here about Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, that might kind of confuse us at the first glance, like, blood of Abel. But what he's trying to do is reminding us of what happened when Abel died. Remember how Cain slew Abel, his blood spilt on the ground, and then it says Abel's blood was crying out to the Lord from the ground. It was crying out for what? For justice. And so here's Cain. He's committed this sin, and the blood is, is portrayed as crying out to God, Judge Cain, he deserves to die for what he did. In the same way. Every single one of our sins cries out to God for justice. And if he is the holy God that he is, then he cannot not judge the sin. That would be a miscarriage of justice. He must condemn our sins. And yet, isn't it amazing what this passage says? That Jesus' blood speaks a better word. A better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, a better word than all of your sins is being spoken right now in the throne presence of God. And that better word is, forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, those wounds. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus' blood cries out more loudly than our sins. Not for our condemnation, but for our justification. And all of this shows us just how much better. We have this greater mediator, Jesus offering way better blood than Moses offered. 
We have this greater mediator, Jesus, of such higher dignity than Moses. Jesus actually is God. We also have such a greater covenant. A greater covenant. The old covenant was a gracious gift. We need to remember that. There was grace given in that old covenant. And it was a real picture of a real God. Israel really knew God. And they really knew his grace. What did God reveal on that mountain? I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Sounds like grace. They knew God's forgiveness. And yet, what do we have now? That was just a shadow of the grace that we now have. We now receive, through Jesus Christ, an ocean of love compared to a lake back in the Old Covenant. And whereas in the Old Covenant, God was holding his people at arm's length, saying, you don't know just how sinful you are. You don't know just how holy I am. Now, even as we see just how sinful we are, and we have at least a glimpse of how holy God is, now God says, welcome. I'm not holding you at arm's length anymore. I want you to come. I want you to enter into my presence, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that leads us to then ask, this is amazing, but what am I supposed to do with this? And what even does it mean when it says you have come to Zion? Like I, I'm here in Vandalia, like I, I'm not on a mountain as far as I know, right? Like what on earth, what on earth does this even mean? Well, first thing is this. I'd like, to, I'd like to share three things very briefly with you. First is this, acceptance. Acceptance. Do we accept that God accepts us? Do we accept what God is saying here, that we are accepted by him? Do we believe that Jesus' blood really does speak a better word than the blood of Abel? Do you believe that your arrival at Zion, which as we will see is actually taking place right now, but also is future, do you believe that your arrival in the throne presence of God is an occasion for joy? Or that God's going to say, what are you doing here? No, he is glad to see you. He is glad to have you arrive at, your, at his home. You know, have you ever offended somebody, and um, like badly, and you're going up to their house to try to apologize, and you ring the doorbell, and you're like, what's going to happen? And they open the door, right? God's telling you what kind of reception he's going to have when you arrive. It's going to basically be equivalent to the father's reaction when the prodigal son gets home, which is kill the fattened calf, which is old, you know, old test, or, you know, ancient way of saying fire up the barbecue. <laughs> Time to celebrate. Our, my beloved son has returned. My beloved daughter has returned. He leaves us no doubt no room to doubt about his acceptance of us. That's how great Jesus' sacrifice is. Do you believe it? Do you believe that your arrival at Zion is a cause for not just celebration among the people, not just celebration among the angels, celebration on God's part? He will be glad to have you. That's the first part. Do you accept it? We need to banish all thoughts of self-loathing, of self-condemnation, as if our sins were better than the blood of Jesus? No, no. Second point is awe. Awe. Of course, we're already in awe of God's grace as we just think about the previous point. Like, wow, that's forgiveness. That is incredible. 
But there's even more reasons for awe. And that's why he gives this description of Zion. He's trying to get you stoked. He's trying to get you to see this is incredible stuff. Do you realize in him saying, you have come, that he's saying that your arrival at Zion is a present reality? How can this be? How can this be? On the one hand, as we're going to see, the arrival at Zion is a future reality as well. I mean, there's reason why in Hebrews he keeps saying, see to it, you don't fall short of the inheritance that you're going to receive. So that's true as well. We are looking for the fullness of God's grace being poured out when Jesus returns. But this is part of the tension of this time between the times where Jesus has come and he's coming again, is that in the middle, even as we're awaiting the consummation of all things, even now, because of Jesus' first coming, we get to enjoy the glories that we will get to enjoy when he comes again. And that is especially true here in Lord's Day worship. Here on the Lord's Day, when you hear that greeting on behalf of God, that's why only a minister does this, on behalf of God, grace to you and peace, you should say, translation, welcome to the mountaintop. Welcome to my home. I'm glad that you're here. And then, as we gather, we need to be thinking by faith that we're not just gathering with our beloved brothers and sisters here in Vandalia. No. We are, of course, we are gathering with them. But we are also gathering right now, present in this place, in a deep and profound spiritual way that I cannot really explain to you. Present in this place right now are all the innumerable angels of God's glorious presence in heaven. Present right now, right here, is every single brother and sister in Christ who have gone before us in the faith, persevered to the end, and are now perfected in holiness, presently worshiping Jesus. They are here. That's what it says. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the innumerable angels. You have come to the souls of the righteous made perfect. Do you believe it? This is where you have come. Now, today, present. It's reality. Right now, you have come to Zion and to all these glories through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I hope it gives you that sense, like it says in the book of Acts, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. I love that. That's what we should have. Everyone should keep feeling a sense of awe. And I hope you see, it's not that terrorized sense of awe, like, oh my goodness, I'm about to die. That's what they were thinking at the foot of Sinai. Like, we're all toast. We're just gone. No. It's a sense of awe that God, who is that holy, now welcomes us. It's a joyful awe at his amazing grace. And so I just want to ask you, frankly, does that characterize you? Does that sense of awe at what you're experiencing now, at what you come and experience each Lord's Day, does that characterize you? Are you amazed at the riches of God's grace? There are times, some of these times when we come here, right, where we don't really feel it, right? Maybe the sermon's not as wow or whatever, or, you know, you're just feeling yucky for whatever reason. But are you, are you struck by what God says is happening, even if you don't feel it? Are you struck by, like, this is what happens every single week? Why am I, why am I blowing off worship for, like, this or that or this? This is incredible. 
I hope you feel that sense of awe. And if you don't, Jesus will give that to you too. Ask him for it. Say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that what's going on here is great. You said it right here, Hebrews 12. But I also don't believe it, I know, and because of my decisions and how I think about this stuff. Help my unbelief. So there's acceptance, there's awe, and then finally, longing. Very briefly, this is what you're experiencing now, but doesn't it make you want the real, full-on, unmitigated glory that is to come? Aren't you looking forward to when it's not going to be just by faith, just the pastor saying, look, look what the Bible says. And you're like, okay, I believe it, but I don't see it. Aren't you looking forward to when you'll see it? Aren't you looking forward to when you'll get to go into God's presence and enjoy it forever and never have to come back down from the mountaintop at the end of every worship service where it's just never going to end? And we'll go higher up and higher in to the glory of who Jesus is and what, he, what his love is for us. I hope, as you reflect on these things, that it produces not just acceptance, not just awe, but longing true, genuine love for the things that are to come, a love for Zion, blessed Zion, that place where God's glory dwells, where he welcomes us, his people. The way has been opened to the mountaintop through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to Christmas. We're looking forward to lots of other great events coming. But our final, final arrival at Zion, now that is our greatest joy. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to Zion. And we confess that our hearts often are so tepid towards these things, so, so little awe often characterizes our lives. And so, God, we know that this is because of our, the lack of our faith. We, we need you to fan our faith into flame. And we repent of our lack of faith. We repent of the ways in which we actively even cling to the things of this earth over you. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to truly be captured by a sense of the glory of what Jesus has won for us and the glory that we get to experience here each Lord's Day as we come to the mountaintop and meet with you and meet with all the host of heaven and all the saints who've gone before us as we are all united in love and in praise and worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.